Vincent Dermody is the Managing Director of Conresnik. Vincent started out as an engineer and has worked in IT strategy and as an enterprise architect. He's worked for companies like Railcorp, GPT Group, Intel and Graincorp before moving into advisory and consulting with Conresnik. Vincent, can you tell us a bit about the work that you do now? The work that we do now, a lot of our clients uh, obviously are in the commercial real estate area, but we work at many levels. We work with investors, we work with asset managers, portfolio managers, facility managers, we work on the construction side, and we also help tenants work out how they're going to make their tenancy work. Our key focus is actually building a proper strategy for all of these players and actually joining the dots for how the actual building is supposed to work together. The challenges that we see is that everybody is fixated on the technology and the, uh, the answer is the technology. We're helping people articulate the question, what is it you're trying to achieve? What's the value you're trying to get to? Great, yeah. So I wanted to have this discussion with you because I see so many clients who could use your services but have no idea that you exist. And clients have experienced consultants to varying degrees and I've experienced consultants to varying degrees. Um, but you're, you seem to be very, very different in your approach and with just the breadth of your knowledge as well across the whole building. Can you sort of tell us why you're that little bit different? Sure, and this is not to say the other consultants don't have a role and they're not good at what they do, but what you find is there's a lot of consultants sitting in the function box. So you get, you get consultants who are specialists in AV and they are the specialists in AV. You get consultants yep. who are specialists in different areas, function by function by function. And then you get the generalists, like the big four, who come in and they apply consulting methodologies to something they're not particularly familiar with. The difference with us is we take a broad, overarching strategy view to everything, but we do it with a knowledge of the building and understanding it. So we know what a rise is versus a riser. You get a lot of consultants who don't. So we understand what happens. We understand what happens in commissioning. We understand, like coming from a civil engineering background, we understand the things that make a building work or fail. But at the same time, we also understand the investors. We understand what they're concerned about. You know, how do you justify to an investor, I'm going to spend $2 million on an integration platform, and they're looking at it and going, well, what's the value in this for me? So the key thing that we bring to the table is the ability to articulate those values to all the different players right through the stack. Yeah, you've really got um, the, the all of the parties who are involved, you've really got a really good understanding of everything that needs to happen from the investor right down to the employee. Correct. Yeah. Um, Talk us through your career to date. I mean, you mentioned that you started out as a civil engineer, but you've morphed into strategy and now architecture. What roles have led you to this role and informed the value that you add to the clients? Interesting question. Um, my career is a bit of an accident, really. I kind of reacted to what's in front of me rather than plan it. I started out wanting to be a civil engineer. I had this vision of building bridges and tall buildings. But when I graduated with an engineering degree in 1993, there wasn't much construction. So I went and did a master's in finite element analysis, which is kind of a precursor to your 3D, real, uh, 3D visualization that you see now. And the skill I learned there was C++ programming. So the skill that was actually quite sellable in the market when I came out was uh, as a programmer. So I went down the IT track with this view, I'm going to go back to engineering when the, when the money comes right. I never quite met it back. I'm kind of coming back to it now. And along the way, I worked. I've been Irish and been based in Ireland. A lot of our, uh, a lot of the places you would work were American multinationals. So that dragged me into a lot of the American uh, big tech firms. So I ended up in Intel, uh, uh, delivering innovation for them for a while. Uh, from there, I took a, a just a sea change. I wanted to move to Australia, so I just moved over here and just reacted was in front <laughs> of me. So I suppose I'm not as a lot of Irish uh, people do. <laughs> as a lot of Irish people do. So you know, what what informs your career? The sun. So things yep. like that. But um, look. Happiness. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's key. You gotta, 
I think that the key thing that's kind of informed my career to date is engage in what you're doing, enjoy what you're doing, and make a difference to what you're doing. And once you're doing that, you will actually rea- you'll respond to what's in front of you very actively. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a big market for the things that you do to add value to clients because this, these are big, big tasks that they're taking on. And most have never done it before. Um, or they might, you know, they might have done it 10 years ago when, when the whole, you know, environment was so different. People weren't activity-based working, you know, in their droves 10 years ago. People weren't, you know, working from home flexibly and, um, you know, using the workplace as just, well, that's just another place I work because I can work anywhere. The, the, I think that the, um, the value that you can add to clients really is, is, is ripe for the taking a little bit and that, that career certainly informs it for sure. Um, can we talk about a typical consultation with your clients? Because um, you and I have talked about drive down, drive up and differentiate framework and I love it. Right. So can you talk a little bit to that yes. without giving away? Okay, <laughs> so um, I think the first word I keep hitting everybody with is be pragmatic. Yep. Don't look for the answer, look for the question. Got, if you articulate a good question, if you help the client articulate their question correctly and what their value is with that question, the answers will fall out. I think what we've got to do is demystify technology. What we've got to acknowledge is technology will respond to whatever we ask it to do. If we ask it the wrong question, it'll give us the wrong answer. So the key thing we help our clients do is understand in a pragmatic way what's the value they're trying to, res- trying to get out of this and then what is the question that needs to come out and be responded to by technology. And that's what we do. We do it with the investors. We do it with the asset managers. We do it with the facility managers. And we do it with the tenants. And, you know, a classic case of this is activity-based working. It's a great buzzword, and it is quite, it, it, it's definitely a growth area. But the first thing you have to ask is, what is my business? How do people in my business operate? What's the future for people operating in my business? Example would be auto, uh, robotic process automation. How is that going to change my business? Am I going to move away from these you know, um, silos of people working at a desk punching in a process or am I going to move towards people collaborating more actively? And you've got to work through that first before you start saying, ah, the answer is activity-based working and a smart workplace. Now, the smart workplace is the end, but it is a many-faceted thing and you need to understand what your question is before you actually get to your answer. And that's what we help people do. I love it. Um, and you've got a real passion for building security especially. So something that people talk about, but they're not necessarily walking the walk. Um, you've been at Intel and GPT Group, so I would love to get your insights on providing um, a secure solution for a building. Okay, so I'll go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago with the consultants that are in the, in the marketplace. We've got some excellent consultants in the marketplace who specialize in devices or, s- or networks or elements of that. Yep. Security isn't a function. It's an overarching That's fabric. Right, yeah. And you've got to build a fabric and understand the fabric. So I've seen so many specs come out for buildings which are put in a network, ICN or whatever it is. And it hasn't been designed to think about, well, what's the cyber consequence of this? What's the isolation that you've got to put on the cyber for this? Do, you know, how do you use VPNs correctly? How do you use data correctly? Have you thought about the privacy ranking for the sensors that you're using and what it is? And nobody has built the privacy framework. We've built it, but it's quite simply saying, this item is going to collect this type of information on you. It's going to use it in this way. It's going to retain it in this way, and it's going to share it in this way. So you have to actually start ranking the devices so people have an understanding. When you walk into a room, you're now at this level of privacy with the devices that are in this room. And, you know, a classic case for this is if you actually, if you're in America now, they will actually book you on a flight with your face, like your facial recognition based upon your passport. Key thing is, 
they don't retain that information. They just check it against your passport. So there's no retention on any of your facial features. That's fine from a privacy point of view. So we've got to actually start demystifying this and actually working through the actual user journey through the environment and the actual privacy and cyber needs that go with that. Yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? It's Absolutely. a constant balance between the, the privacy that employees crave um, versus the security aspects that, that you need. And, the, ki and the key part of this is building the language that people understand because if I ask you, are you going to give away your identity? You're going to go, hell no. But if I start to explain to you how your identity is going to be used and how it's not going to be retained and how it's not going to be processed, you may be more comfortable. And again, it's about building that language with your employees and making them comfortable with what you're doing. Yeah. It's also sort of enlightening people about how they're already doing certain aspects. So, yeah. you know, I use the facial recognition on my iPhone because I thought, I'll give it a try, see yeah. if I like it. Um, and, I, and on my previous device, it had a, a, a fingerprint. So now they've got my fingerprints and my and face. face. Yeah. So I think it's talking to people about what they already do that they may not know about. I mean, CCTV is everywhere yep. um, and you don't even realise it. But in, in the workplace and around buildings, we can actually harness those things that are already in place and use them for analytics or to create better experiences. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a big education, I guess, that, um, that needs to go with that. Um, you and I have also talked about intelligent spaces, which is a, is a phrase that you use a lot. And um, we'd love to be able to provide the technology to inform an intelligent space, but often we're getting really dumb tenders. Uh, we'll call it out. Can you talk about the traditional procurement process that building companies are going through and why this is not leading to an intelligent space? They, they claim they want this smart space, this yep. intelligent space, but the end result is really dumb tenders. How do we deal with that? So let's start that Let's start the answer to that with an, uh, understanding what intelligent space is. Intelligent space is not just a smart building. Smart buildings sit inside of intelligent space, but intelligent space is the before, during, and after as you yes. go to it. So <laughs> it's almost like taking a flight. Your entire experience from searching, booking, boarding, flying, like it's all of those parts put together. That's what intelligent space is for a building. So if you consider a building to be the plane, Intelligent space is all the other things that go together. So you're not just integrating with the processes inside the building. You're integrating with the processes that are part of the business, the processes that are part of logistics, the processes that are part of public transport. These are all the things that you have to integrate with and enhance. Um, the, the challenge you have, uh, you know, it's, it's a well-acknowledged thing at this stage. The traditional way in which a building comes into being is an investor will go, go to an investment committee, you get approval, a performer is signed, performer is given to a builder, and inside of that, there is a there is a cheat uh, there is a cheat sheet of these are all the costs, and it's allocated to it. And all of a sudden, your intelligent space technology is competing with the lounge in the reception area for money because you got to pull that budget out of somewhere. Yep. So it's it's, it's this constant uh, attritious rearguard action to get the money to actually add to the to an intelligent space. So realistically, what we need to start doing is we need to start pushing up up channel before the pro forma up-channel of the investment committee, whereby there's technology deployed, in the, deployed into the building, but there's also this digital experience. You have to invest in your digital experience as much as you invest in your actual space. And it's a case of splitting the budget and actually approaching it in two different ways. Yeah, so you've talked to me before about having a specific budget for Absolutely. building experience, user experience. Absolutely. It cannot be so, like, you cannot have your orchestration and integration engine competing with, as I said, the lounge and the marble in the yeah. reception area, because that's yeah. what's happening at the moment. That's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
um, it feels like a fight over exactly the same bucket of money. Um, talking to that as well, you know, you, you mentioned being pragmatic and I, and I really like your pragmatic approach to the user journeys in particular. So, you know, you talk about, you know, setting aside the budget for that. You you consult with companies on their primary, their tertiary, sorry, primary, secondary, tertiary user journeys. Um, and I guess like, and, and the, the big area of consulting, um, you could go off on tangents talking about these things and never actually get anything done. But you are very pragmatic about your approach. Yes. Um, and what I'd like to know is, can you do these uh, journey mapping things as a relatively simple exercise over a couple of days or weeks versus you know months of consultation? I think so. Yeah. I think so. And to be honest, um, and again, I'm, I'm not kicking my brethren in the big four, but the, the, the generalist consulting approach is to get everybody in a room, get consensus and build up and there's all these think tanks and you're asking a colorblind person to describe blue effectively because you're asking people to describe something they don't know and it's not possible. The reality of the personas that are in a building is we talk about three personas. Your first degree, second degree, and third degree persona. Your first degree persona is an occupant, a tenant, a visitor, a retailer, or a non-spatial user, i.e. somebody who has an antenna or some advertising or whatever. So they're your primary users in your building. Then you have your second uh, personas, which are basically the people who support that. So you're looking at security, cleaning, you know, building services, premises services. These are all your secondary personas. And then you got they're the often the people that we forget. Absolutely. Yeah, like yeah, that people forget in these in these journeys. And if you're so, if your cleaner does not have access to go into the actual VIP toilets, yep. well, the VIP toilets don't get cleaned. That's so right. now it's an experience for persona number one. Yep. So it's about bringing bringing all that together. So again, then you have the third persona, which are people who aren't allocated to the building. So you could have your Uber Eats deliverer. Mm-hmm. things of that nature people who actually will come to the building to add a service but will do so only on an occasional basis and not in a planned way um, any logistics any deliverables all these are so so when DHL hits your building how smooth can you make that delivery how smooth are you going to make that happen and you know the loading dock is usually the point of most contention in a lot of office blocks mm-hmm. because how do you get stuff to places and how does that actually how does your building integrate it so we actually d- instead of sitting back and staring at the sky we come in with like a list here's the personas let's nail these first yep. and just understand what they are then with those personas we look at the expectations that go against them so the expectations like the dimensions of expectation are you want it has to be safe has to be accessible has to be secure presentation has to be there and it has to be optimal and how it works so for every one of those personas that's what you're after and then the last layer we put on that is the actual events that drive them true so you got before the building i.e. outside what, what drove your DHL to there, what brought your visitor there. So there is a part of your user journey that sits there. There's your arrive and depart, as in your security in, security out, identify yourself, have access, have it allocated, and notify, things like that. All the access that goes with that, so that comes into geofencing, rooms are booked to you, lifts go to the right floor, um, allocate and assign. So I'm coming to work with you today. I've been assigned a desk. I've been assigned a room. I've been assigned a place to put the parcel. I've been assigned a locker. Whatever it is, all that assignment. And then finally, the reporting. All the actual information tells you how that works. Quite frankly, that framework will cover 99.999% of the user journeys that actually matter to any building. And that can be done quite quickly. And the best way to do it is not to think conceptually. Pick a person. Pick a real person. Walk their journey. Do not sit back and create this persona called Mary. Pick Mary from your staff. Walk through it with her. That's yep. what you do. Yep. And uh, this is the problem with digital in, in, in general. 
when we talk about agile and things like this, it, sometimes it, it gets too woolly and fluffy. Mm-hmm. The real, the only way you really test it to, to like, the best way to think about this is a vague answer, a vague question will give you a vague answer. A specific question will give you a specific answer. A real person will give you the specific question and therefore you will answer that and you will have a proper requirement when it comes to it. Yeah, using real people for research. <laughs> it sounds too simple. But sometimes, you know, th- these things can, because of the process that you go through for consulting and because often it's driven from that same budget because budget budgets aren't allocated, you know, here's uh, a portion of money for consulting, here's a portion of money for user experience and actually, you know, uh, getting the technology built out. So there is these competing aspects for the same pot of money. So these processes it's it's really good i think to have like a really well drilled approach to these things to come in with that experience it's it's merely a framework for for dealing to to draw out these user journeys with each client that you're dealing with i think it's a really good approach um my other question around the intelligent space so Intelligent space features are constantly growing and evolving as tech becomes better and more easily integrated and, and ideas from customers and vendors get better as well. So the problem is that often clients want to see something at a workplace before they can concep- conceptualize it, let alone sign off on it. Like you just talked about how um, you know, you're know you asking them to describe the color blue and they, they don't know what's possible. They um, they think they can go and do the research in other buildings or other workplaces yeah. to see, well, what could we do? Um, but a lot of this hasn't even been invented yet. It's it's really um, some out there thinking required. So how do we how do we get around that problem? Okay, so there's when we talk about why you do smart building, we talk about three factors, and you mentioned them earlier on: drive down, you're mm-hmm. driving down the cost; driving up, you're driving up the experience and differentiating which is it, you're doing something that nobody else is doing. You're, your building is different because of something you've done with it. Um, the challenge you always have is clients go, oh, show me differentiation somewhere else. Well, you're not differentiating if you're doing what somebody else has done. So yeah. you've you got to actually be pragmatic and understand. The place to find differentiation is to look not inside your industry, but look beside it. So the place I always look to is I look at what airlines do. Airlines are driving this experience. They've been at it for a while and they've been using digital to do so. So if you want this seamless visitor experience, check out what happens for a first-class passenger at Qantas. That's a seamless visitor experience the whole way through. Don't look to your own industry always for inspiration, for differentiation. Look outside it and steal. Steal as much as you need to. Like steal, steal the ideas from everybody else. You don't look to yourself. Look outside. That's the key thing with this. And when people turn around and say, oh, um, you know, I want to see examples of this, examples of that, well, driving down, when you drive down, all you can see is the report. You know, like, here's the tech. Here's the here's screen and there's a report. Quite frankly, there's very little to demonstrate in that. And the, the reality that we're seeing, and it's a challenge, is the better we get with technology, the less it is obvious. It's more seamless. It's not there. It's not evident. Uh, and and it's agree with you more. And that's yeah. the biggest challenge. So when somebody comes in and experience is okay, they don't see that the technology is just taking care of this. And a classic anecdote I've heard about the edge in Amsterdam, which is vaunted as a, a great example of smart buildings, and it probably was five or six years ago, was the amount of apps you have to interact with to get anything done. Now, the yeah. smarter buildings have no apps to interact with because no the algorithms are taking care of this. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you don't get this perception of smartness 
because it's not evident to you and it's a challenge so i think it there's a, it, it's a t it's, it's a two-headed thing you got to educate people what to expect but you also got to get people to focus not on their own industry but look beyond it for inspiration yeah we we just wrote an uh, i just wrote an article actually about platform versus apps and trying to describe you know some of this stuff is so conceptual when we go into to meet with new people and they're planning a new building and we're talking about a platform um and even coming back to those you know dumbish tenders they think they want an app yeah. because that's what they've seen is um, essential in a smart building and um, so they, they'll put a tender out for an app and that's it's actually not what they need and if they want you know there might be an app interface that brings together a couple of experiences but to have you know I, I reckon we've got about 30 apps 30 apps on our phone that we just have to go between to do a simple task um, a simple journey like like crisscrossing Sydney for example to try and for, I live down in the southern suburbs in the southern beaches so to try and get to ride or to North Sydney for a meeting I've got to figure out what's the best way to go should I drive should I yep. catch a train and I've got to open up 30 different apps to do that what well, it was at least four different apps to actually get train timetables traffic times to go back and forth and the, and the enhanced experience you're going to see you're seeing now with the likes of google maps is i don't have uber anymore i don't have my sydney trains app anymore i just have google maps and i open up and i can kick off to uber from there i can kick so the seamlessness is starting to creep in yep. and if you go back to when you got your first iphone you had screens upon screens upon screens of apps <laughs> Right? And everybody's just culling those apps down and going, I only want two screens. I want to simplify it to a point, I think, where some people actually get a little bit narky about, oh, you have to, I have to use an app for this. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm coming to visit your building for a day and I have to use an app. Really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I think people have to think a little bit more about it and not just get fixated on technology as an app. Technology is the enablement of the experience and the sophistication of that technology is how seamlessly it's done. Yeah. Well, my next question was, what's a common mistake you see lots of businesses making? But it's probably, you've probably already answered that. Three words, apps, agile, big data. They're the things. Okay. People just get fixated on the tools, not on the outcome. That's right. not to say big data isn't extraordinarily important, but it's just the tool. When you ask the big, what is, what is the question you're asking of big data? If you haven't articulated the question, you don't know what to ask. Likewise with agile, it's a mechanism. It's not a function. It's a way in which you get get somewhere, but you s it still doesn't get you there. You still have to have a very clear view what it is you're trying to get to. Are and you talking about agile in the software building um, methodology, or no, agile in the in the way of working? Agile in software and in the way of working. You yeah. have to have a clear view where you're going. Yeah, because it's a term that's thrown around so much. Absolutely. Right? So so it's been one of these kind of fuzzy words. That's oh, we don't have clear requirements. It's okay. We'll do agile. No, you need to have a clear view of what good looks like and what the end looks like. You may actually add layers to it, but you need to have a very clear view of what the North Star is. Yep, yep, that's good. Um, have you got any cool projects coming up that you're excited about? we got a number of things. Well, all of our work is consult. We do not sit on the other side of the line. So I think that's the other key thing that differentiates us. Um, we're not kind of defining something we're going to deliver. We actually always focus on the strategy. Um, can't delve into the projects too much. I will tell you what I'm seeing that actually I'm yeah. that, that's starting to... You don't to have to share clients or anything uh, like okay. that. It's just I know that you're always sort of working at the forefront. You've always got the cool latest, like a customer is thinking about this and that's that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're, we're working with a lot of investors and I think things that I'm seeing is the investors are finally getting it around smart buildings. 
and I don't I'm not saying that they get it that they have the answers but they know there's more to smart buildings than just a sustainability ranking which is what investors thought about previously now they're starting to realize well we've gone beyond the days of a square meter of concrete that we're going to sell and lease we're actually looking at it has to have something more it has to have extra services it has to have it has to have a deeper value to the to the tenant which gives me a stickier tenant which increases my profitability which increases the valuation of my building so that's starting to tick and i think it's it's going to happen that we'll see valuations of buildings be influenced by the sophistication mm-hmm. of the actual technology applied. Um, so we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of um, digital wellness, digital well-being is starting to become a thing that people are talking about more. So Cacadian rhythm and lighting and st- yeah. stuff of that nature. That's starting to now become, it was a bit on the edge and now it's becoming, no, it's part of the conversation and it's very, very real. I'm noticing that as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the other thing that uh, I personally am pushing a lot is the whole idea of um, accessibility from a point of view of multi-abled people. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, we're designing buildings with a premise that everybody's going to interact visually yep. in, 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 in a normal way or a, in an average way, but it's like not, not everybody is. So the technology has to be mindful of all the ways in which people are going to interact with that building from an accessibility point of view and, again, opening up the building and not causing, like, simple things like people use service dogs. Well, how does technology work with that? Have you have you th- like have you thought that through? Have you has that scenario played through? So you're starting to see a little bit of breath coming to the people thinking that goes behind this, um, and I also see some of the big players, some of the big platform players, are starting to get in. They're obviously you know your Microsofts and Googles are getting in and they're kicking things around, but they're getting a little bit more sophisticated and they're starting to build their understanding of what's in the building and what it actually means to be successful. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that happening at the moment. Great, all exciting things to look forward to. I think. Um, Definitely, you touched on the disability or, or multiple. I guess it, it just talks to the the diversity of the workplace, right? Yes. So, not just the workplace, but because um, you th- th- you know jobs can be done flexibly; they can be done from anywhere. You can actually choose from a more diverse talent pool, sure. and there might be vision impairment. There might be um, you know wheelchair allowances and things that that need to be made for the actual space um but and, and sometimes we do a good job with talking about it in the space but not so much with the technology correct yeah. so people pe- people can visually design and accommodate yeah. because it's it, it's easy to 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 understand what the challenge may be but it's not as instinctive to understand what a digital challenge may be and yeah. there, there needs to be a focus on that and we need to start bringing that to how we do things the other thing just to close out i'm saying is I'm seeing workplace as a service starting to be yes. mooted and not starting to take legs. So, you know, without being unfair, I think um, we've seen property companies set up their own lemonade stand as in here's my workplace as a service and it's it's property company by property company by property company. What we're starting to see now is that as an overarching offering across like where, where you have a vendor who can reach a broad audience, not just certain uh, property groups inside of uh, inside of cities that thinking is now it's a long way off there's a lot of a lot of connectivity to get into the buildings and make things happen but the thoughts are there and it's starting to it's starting to take a bit of legs i am seeing that too um on back on the 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 digital um enablement of even disabilities i I worked in the disability for sector for a little while and where we uh, one of the things that I, I sort of discovered from that is like mental health as a disability yeah. and so 
didn't hadn't thought of it like that before but you know if you've got chronic anxiety or if you've got chronic depression um, those things can really affect how you work how you interact with things and and you can still work you can sort of work in with it but you do need to make some allowances and one of our projects that's in Melbourne I don't think we've kicked it off yet but it's around um, that that aspect of it's a place where a lot of people with mental health disabilities will come and how you know a visitor check-in for someone who is who, who suffers from you know really bad anxiety on a digital kiosk that can be triggering for them yep. so I think what we're seeing is really unique problems coming from the market where they are thinking about you know they can't use traditional um, means to solve these issues because they're emerging issues and and they sort of are looking for different ways how do we make that more automated because I can't have a person interact with a screen because they're too anxious about it Absolutely. And the other thing we need to start thinking about is we need to start bringing stakeholders from representative bodies to the table to help us understand what we're missing. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yep. And it, so it broadens... And that's part of your job. It's part of the job. Yep. Bring, bring everybody who's relevant to this. And, you know, classic example, you're talking about people with anxiety or anybody struggling with depression or anything of that nature. You know, Cacadian rhythm lighting can be part of that. The activity-based working can be quite stressful for people. You mm-hmm. got, you know, so you, you got to actually think broadly around everything that you do. It's not one size fits all, and that's the key thing we're saying here. Whereas I think up to now, the marketplace has very much been a generic one size fits all activity-based work, and we're going to workflow is going to be in this way, and it's kind of a one. Si- it's, it's very homogenous in its thinking. Yeah. And now we got to go. Hang on, we got to unwind a little bit of this and actually understand the diversity that we're actually bringing to the table here, because that's reality. Great place to finish. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank um, you. And if there's, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, they can come through me and they can visit the Conrosmic website. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Great. Thanks, Vincent.